Happy New Year and welcome to Artemisy, the podcast. I'm Kay Charles, a.k.a. Kiana Faircloth. Artemisy is where art and intimacy meet, and for the next two hours, we'll float through genres from jazz to soul and beyond. From new releases to classic favorites, come take this intimate journey with me into the depths of the heart and soul. In this episode, we'll celebrate some of the best music of 2020.2, AKA 2021, with some of the tracks that got us through. If it weren't for the solid soundtrack that these artists supplied, I don't know where I would be, child. I'm also honored to kick off 2022 by sharing space with a man who had a groundbreaking year, making history as the first Black composer presented at the Met in its 138-year history, the incredibly prolific Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard. Let's commence with one of DC's own, Mark Carey. Here he is from his latest album, Life Lessons, with And It's Supposed to Be Love. This is Artemisy on DC Radio 96.3 HD4 and online at dcradio.gov.
done and don't know where to run. People always trying to take a bite out of my mind. If you need a fight, maybe we could start. I feel like my just be coming down. Tell me why you can't be found. It's so unreasonable. I know you. Love is a difficult life. Maybe we should take it to the
This highly anticipated album, Starfruit, drops on February 11th. And let me tell you, I'm just waiting with bated breath for its arrival. That was Moonchild, led by the velvety vocals of the newly married Amber Navrin singing their lead single, Too Good. We heard an artist by the name of Thames right before that, featuring the DMV's own Brent Fiaz with a track called Found. Her album, If Orange Was a Place, landed her on NPR's Top 100 Albums of 2021. Up next, Terrence Blanchard with the title track from his now Grammy-nominated album, Absence, with E-Collective and the Turtle Island Quartet. We sit down for an ultimate conversation right after this. You're listening to Artemisy on DC Radio.
Terrence Blanchard is an amazing example of what it truly means to diversify one's talents. From film scoring to becoming the first Black composer ever to be presented on New York's Metropolitan Opera stage in 2021, the six-time Grammy-winning, two-time Academy Award-nominated trumpeter had one stellar year. Not only did he and his wife, Robin Burgess, receive a humanitarian award for their work supporting musicians in their hometown of New Orleans during the pandemic, Blanchard's latest album, Absence, in tribute to Wayne Shorter, is now nominated for another Grammy Award. As the jazz chair at UCLA's Herb Alpert School of Music, he is an artist and educator that believes in giving back and giving thanks. Thank you so much for joining me on Artemisy Terrence. Oh, thank you for having me, Kenya. Let me tell you, I, I'm really honored to be here. When I first met you, I met you, I guess it was about a month ago now at the Frederick Jazz Festival. Oh, yeah. And you came and played with E-Collective and the Turtle Island Stream. Thank you, yeah. Man, absolutely wow. soul-stirring performance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we had a lot of fun playing that music, you know, just trying to pay homage to one of our great heroes, Wayne Shorter, you know, and, you know, with Turtle Island, it's been this, there's been this, um, I don't know how to even explain it, but there's, there's been this growth in both bands, you know, just, just from exploring each other's musical personalities, we're all growing from it. So it's yeah. amazing. There's an interesting story too, about how the recording of Absence came about with Turtle Island, I know you guys have been talking about doing something together and just it kind of came together really quickly. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it came together really quickly. As a matter of fact, I was talking about it yesterday. Somebody asked me, you know, how long did we rehearse? And I'm like, dude, we didn't rehearse, you know. Really? We, Stop. No, no, we didn't get a chance. We rehearsed in the studio. That was about it. We didn't have a day of rehearsal before. Yeah. But what happened was, you know, I wanted to do something for Wayne Shorter. You know, there were so many moments where I kept thinking, you know, this guy is the reason why I'm here. He, you know, him, Miles Davis, Herbie, thought that whole crew, especially Wayne, because of his compositions. And I want to show him now what he means to us. You know, I wanted to let him know how much we love him, how much he's changed our lives, you know, yeah. and... um one of the things that he's always done is always tried to encourage us to have our own voice. So the album was not going to be just us playing Wayne's music. He wouldn't have wanted that. I don't think he would have wanted that. I really think it had to be about his music and showing him our music and how he influenced our creativity, you know? It started out just as a project just for the E-Collective, but Fabian Almazan, who was the pianist in the band at the time, said, you know, he wanted to write for strings, a string quartet. And I said, sure, no problem. And then my manager, Robin Burgess, she um, said, well, why not use Turtle Island String Quartet? And I went, wow, it's a great idea, because I knew of them, but I'd never seen them play live. And man, when we got into the studio, it was like the melding of two, two minds. You know, um, and it's been like that on the road. You know, you saw it at the performance when we were in Jersey. You know, we've been having a great time. But but here's the here's the thing, the icing on the cake for me. What really set it off was we, you know, right before the session, we went to Wayne's house. 
And we hung out with Wayne for the day. Wow. Both ensembles, E Collective and Turtle Island. And um, it was just an amazing experience listening to him. He was working on his opera at the time and uh, seeing the music there and talking to him. It just kind of set the tone for the entire session. And we did the session right before the pandemic. Mm. We were lucky to get everything recorded. We just didn't have it mixed for the longest time. Oh, I see. Now, this concept of absence, uh, of course, inspired by Wayne. I know I read, I think I read your daughter has a special connection Mm -hmm. with Wayne Shorter. And can you speak about the whole concept of absence and what that means? Well, the thing about it is like, you know, one of the things that I've always loved about Wayne's music is the simplicity and the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, there's all too often so many times in jazz where everybody wants to display how fast they can play, how high they can play, the most complicated rhythmic thing they can do. How many notes? <laughs> yeah, how many notes you can play. And one of the things that I love about Wayne is that he can just take a simple melody and break your heart, you know, or he can make you really ponder, think about something, you know. And I think that's where my daughter was coming from. It's the absence, the space in between the notes. You know, that moment that allows you to reflect, you know, as opposed to just reacting to a sheet of sound, you know. Um, and, you know, Wayne has been like a big uncle to them. You know, they, they met him when, they, when he was really young, obviously. And Wayne is the type of guy, even though they've been around him a couple of times, one meeting with Wayne, <laughs> you know, it'll change your life, man. You wow. Know? Because he's he's just that type of dude. He just he'll ask you a simple question and you and you go, whoa, never really thought about that. You know, do you remember your first experience meeting Wayne? When I was with Art Blakey years ago, you know, we were in started out with Blakey and Lionel Hampton as well. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And we were in Spain on tour and we were in between flights at the airport and we saw somebody walking and somebody goes, man, that's Wayne Shorter. And we were like, oh, my God. And then somebody yelled, somebody in the band yelled, hey, Wayne. And then he stopped. And then he started to walk over. And then we were like, "Uh uh-oh, what do we do now, you know? (laughs) And luckily, Art was there. You know, Art Blakey was there. And he came over and he started to talk to Art. And he goes, hey, how you doing, Art? Boom, boom, boom. Hey, Wayne, how's it going? You know? And uh, I remember somebody asked him if you had to give us any advice about composition, what would it be? And he said, you got to go down into the basement and visit every note. And, you know, I took that to mean you got to work. You know, you have to take time to really investigate your musical ideas. You know, that's one of the things I teach my students. The idea is just that. It's not a composition. It's an idea. You have to really investigate it, flip it around, turn it upside down, turn it inside out and see what's there you know, and try to get as much out of it as you can. Um, But that takes time, you know. And one of the things that I always tell my students, I say, you know, the thing in jazz that you have to start to notice is that there are a lot of jazz musicians who are lazy, you know, Mm -hmm. who just want (laughs) to say, hey, man, let's just go out and play some tunes. You know, let's just do this or let's just vibe out. But that's not the great ones. The great ones are never like that. You know what I mean? Herbie was never like that. He is not like that. Wayne is not like that. You know, Dizzy wasn't like that. All of the guys that I met who were the great ones, they were never like that. They took their time to investigate everything. As a matter of fact, we used to have a joke when we were on tour with Herbie Hancock. 
in rehearsal, if Herbie started to, if he started to look at some music and he started to do this, it was time to go take a break. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was sitting down figuring something out and it probably would take him 30 to 45 minutes. And this is in rehearsal with the band, you know, and then he would come up with an idea and then he would disseminate it to the band and then we'd move on. You know, we wouldn't even really play through the tunes, but we would have the idea sketched out in our minds about what it was going to be. And then it would just kind of develop as we played it on the shows. Wow. Speaking of Wayne, and of course, now he has his opera up and mounted with Esperanza Spalding, which is amazing Mm -hmm. just to see him still creating, you know, still just reinventing himself, it seems. Mm -hmm. Of course, you two have that in common, the whole opera composition and all of that with fire shut up in my bones. Let me just say the first time my first experience at the Met was to see fire shut up in my bones and the sense of pride that I felt I think I mentioned this to you at Frederick was just immeasurable you know when I looked around I saw so many black faces at the Met in a historically let's just say a white space you know what I'm saying it was it was just such Mm -hmm. a thing of beauty to experience and to see, you know, representation of HBCUs on the stage, you know, yep. being a graduate of Howard and all of that, it was incredible. So I just want to, you know, take my hat off to you right now. I know you've gotten this a lot, Thank but you. the amount of people that you brought into the Met, I know for you must feel, you know, just amazing. Well, it was, it was, you know, Cannon, one of the things that was like really profound about it was... That's not what we set out to do. We just wanted to tell a story. We wanted to tell Charles' story. That was it. But then we looked, and this happened in St. Louis when we did it in St. Louis for the first time a few years ago. Somebody else had to tell us that it was an all-black cast. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, so it would, and that's the thing that I try to tell all of my students. Make it about the story. Make it about the art. And then all of the other things will fall into place where they should be. But if you make it about a specific thing, then you have to be beholding to that thing. Right. Sometimes the art might suffer, right? So it was really interesting when people said, man, it was it was nice how you did this with an all-black cast. I literally had to stop and go, oh, right. Yeah, it's an all-black cast. I never thought about it. I didn't think about it. But when it got to the Met, having had that experience in St. Louis, I was extremely proud of all of those singers. You have no idea. Yeah. Um, the first day of rehearsal was so overwhelming. It was powerful to walk into a room of 40 singers and dancers and 16 dancers and be the only person that couldn't sing. Wow. I mean, I mean like everybody in that room can really sing, you know? And when I never forget when they had one of the first chorus rehearsals. I walked by the room as they were singing some of the music and I got emotional. It just blew me away to hear all of those voices. And I think the thing that really blew me away the most was they're very capable. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can sing anything. As a matter of fact, some of those people were in Turandot, Puccini's opera. They were in other operas while they were there. They just weren't doing Pogi and Bess. And they would nail in those other operas. But when it came to fire, one of the things that we had a discussion about, as a matter of fact, that first day, we literally had a roundtable discussion with everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the production. We had a big circle in the, in the 
in the rehearsal room. And we started to talk about the importance of this and what it meant, not only to us, but just to the community in general. And the statements that were being told, there were tears, there, were, there was laughter. The Latonya Moore talked about how she needed her mom to see this opera. Wow. You know, and as a matter of fact, Latonya, I'll never forget every night that I had to do a curtain call. When I would go backstage, I would literally be standing behind her backstage and she was always in tears. Wow. Always, every night. And she said, she said, you don't understand. This is the first role that I've ever sung in my career that I can relate to. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? And that to me is is like a very powerful thing. That's the other thing that made me proud about this, because when I did my first opera champion and I started t- talking to people like Karen Slack, Denise Graves, the late Arthur Woodley, all of these very profound, beautiful black voices, one of the things they all shared with me is that some of them came up from the church. Some of them came up from being jazz singers. Some of them were R&B singers. And when they got to opera, they were told to put that away. Wow. To put that aside. And that very first day, again, what I told the entire crew is that I want you to bring all of that back. I want you to bring all of that to this. Yeah. And Angel Blue, you know, she came up to me a few weeks later. She said, I heard what you said. So do you mind if I try some things? And when she did this, she, she sings this aria called uh, Peculiar Grace. Out there once was a boy of Peculiar Grace, you know, and she mixes in her because she grew up in the church and she mixes in her church background with her operatic voice. And man, let me tell you, the first time she did that, there were tears in the room. And it wasn't just because her performance was beautiful. It wasn't that. It wasn't because the performance was beautiful. But it was about a recognition of who we are and where we've come from. You know, there was a young brother named uh, Regendra, who was the assistant dramaturge. He came up to me during rehearsal one day and uh, he couldn't speak. He was trying to talk, but he couldn't speak because he was crying. And he kept saying, he said, I don't know if people are ready for this. I don't know if people are. And then he just walked out of the room, you know, to look at Camille Brown's choreography. Mm. You know, her choreography was ingenious. Yeah. You know, I'm so the, proud of her. Let me just say that because. Of course. Oh, my God. I, I've watched her grow mm-hmm. in so many different ways. And yeah. to see her and her movement up on that stage, man, it just. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate about you and what you've done with FIRE is that you've made a space for us and our particular and unique flavor. And like you said, you know, you told everybody that you want them to bring all of that Mm -hmm. to this thing. And that's the thing that really, for for me personally, just sitting Mm -hmm. there in the audience, I felt seen. Mm, There you see, see, man, you you just hit it on the head. The thing that I... People keep asking me, you know, what does it feel like? I said, bro, this isn't even about me. This is is really not about me. This is about an underserved community, you know, in this area of art. When the when when you you and you experienced it when the the frat boys come out just in their gear, there's applause. They haven't done anything. They didn't do anything yet. You know, I was joking with him. I said, bro, I ain't never walk on the stage and just get applause like that for doing nothing. (laughs) But the thing that I loved about it was like, it's it's exactly what you said. They were being seen. Now, now having said that, I'm going to tell you this. 
And I'm not trying to promo the performance. I'm just giving you my experience based on champion, right? One of the things, because, you know, the opera's going to Chicago and in, in March and April. And one of the things that I've learned with all of these singers is like, see, everybody, and it's going to be mostly the same people from this cast. These people are digesting their performance right now. They're, they're, they're taking it all in. You know what I mean? Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees because you're right in it, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen it with Denise Graves. I've seen, when you get to that next production of it, man, everything just goes up like this in a way that I can't even see or can't even describe, you know? Yeah. So I'm so excited about it going to Chicago because I know, you know, with all, Will, listen, Will Liverman, Oh. Will Liverman, he was always a great voice. He always had a, you know, huge voice and was a has a beautiful tone to his voice. But his initial performances in rehearsal, he was figuring his way out. He was trying to find some things, you know. And then all of a sudden, when we got into the theater, he started to add his body motion to what it was that he was singing, which made his voice and the performance just rev up even more, uh-huh. you know. Oh, it was... I mean, I'll never forget, you know, there was one day in rehearsal, we all looked around and we go, man, what got into him? (laughs) (laughs) But whatever he's doing, keep eating. Keep Keep going. (laughs) Yeah, because, yeah, because it was, it was, it was so incredibly beautiful. And, and, and I have to say, there's a couple other things that I have to say. One is that to watch all of these people of color take care of each other. (sighs) throughout the rehearsal period. They were each other's support system. I've never seen anything like it. Those little kids, Walter and Caleb, who was his his cover, they took care of them. You know what I mean? It was truly, truly like a family experience, you know? And it was was beautiful. I wanted to go to rehearsal every day. I just wanted to be there, be in that space, just experience that. And the other thing that I have to talk about, because nobody's talking about it, is that, okay, I was the first African-American, but one of the things that I think is extremely important for people to know is that a good portion of this was funded by Black people as well. Wow. I didn't know that. Yes, a lot of people don't know. Darren Walker, part of the Ford Foundation, stepped up to the table and supported us, you know, and um, Susan Johnson also supported. She paid for the entire uh, after party, the entire thing. You know what I mean? So it's, it's so interesting when we look at commerce, you know, in the world of art and philanthropy, you know, we always want to see certain things, but we have to learn how to put our money where our mouth is. Right. And these people did that. And they reaped the benefits and the results. Look at what happened. We damn this sold out every night, eight shows. We could have added shows. And the only reason why we didn't add shows because most of the cast was in Porgy and Bess. Oh, okay. So okay. there was a scheduling issue. So we couldn't do it, but we could have added shows. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, man. I had no idea. That is yeah. so important. We got to help each other. Exactly. I want to go back a little bit to Champion Mm -hmm. and how, you know, fire has sort of given way to it 
going up on the mess stage in April. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I think I first heard about Champion back in, I think it was like 2013 or something like that. Yeah, Um, that's when it was first done in St. Louis. And so now in April 2023, it'll be up at the Met. Mm-hmm. Same cast as you, well, mostly the same cast. You're yeah, we're going. Yeah, we're going to try to bring back as is is well. There are going to be some major changes because a few people aren't with us anymore. Robert Orth and uh, Arthur Whitley are, lo- are no longer with us, so we're going to have to uh, replace those those roles and champion. But Speedo Green, who played Uncle Paul in Fire Shut Up in My Bones, is actually going to play. Uh, uh, Emil Griffith, the fight in his prime. Yeah. And then Eric Owens, who was also in Porgy and Best, the other production of it, he's going to play the older Emil. So those are two powerful voices. You know, I'm, I'm really excited about that. How does it feel to know that you have been working for so long on your own opera and then to see it up? and being produced on the Met stage. And I got to tell you, you know what's funny about that? You're asking that question. Uh, me and my wife are having a discussion about this this morning. You're so busy trying to better your your craft. You, you, it's And it's wild. Because I, I was a big Jerry Rice fan who was a great football player. And Jerry Rice was one of the greatest wide receivers in the, in the NFL. And one of the things he said at the end of the career was, his career was, he never took the time to really enjoy what it is that he did. Mm-hmm. I said, man, that's such a shame. And I'm trying to balance that out with myself because I am so in the business of trying to better myself, you know, because one of the things you guys may not realize is while fire shut up in my bones was at the Met, I went to a dress rehearsal for Turandot, though, Puccini's opera. And from the very first note, I went, oh, I got some work to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like I'm trying to always better myself. I can't sit down and relax and say, oh, I got this covered. You know, there are always things that you can make better. And that's what I get excited about is getting Mm -hmm. a chance to make something better. You know, with Champion, I personally, I think Champion is more emotional than Fire Shut Up In My Bones. You know, there were... I, I watched Champion every time it was performed, and I cried at the end of it every time it was performed. And that was just because, you know, Arthur Woodley was an amazing performer. Everybody, Victor Robinson, they were all amazing performers. So I'm really looking forward to this. But at the same time, I'm looking forward to getting another chance to delve into some of the areas that I think need to be sharpened up a bit. Mm, that's what keeps you inspired, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Now, in closing here, because we got to wrap up, but I know, I believe I read somewhere that your dad was a part-time yes. opera singer as well. So it's kind of been in your blood <laughs> for your entire life. Is this something you always wanted to do to write for? No, no, yeah? not at all. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, man, I did, I really didn't understand my dad. You know, I thought he was a weirdo and all his friends were weirdo. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, well, we lived in a really small house in New Orleans and the front of the house was where the piano was. And so it was one of those carports that we converted into a den. You know, a lot of people do those. So yeah. I remember, man, when I would bring my boys home, I would literally sit down and listen at the door. And I'm like, man, damn, he's in there, you know, practicing something. So I would literally open the door real quick and say, come on, bro, let's go in the back. And, then, and my boys would be like, yo, man, what's your dad doing? I'm like, don't worry about that. This is, listen, 
this is corona back and every wednesday him and a bunch of his friends would have rehearsal with this guy named osceola Blanchett, C-H-E-T, who I, I used to think it was my grandfather, but he was just a brilliant man who came back and taught a young, a lot of young African-American males opera. My dad was one of them. So I used to hear classic opera all the time and never really thought about being involved in this at all. And then when I got a chance, when I, when I did Champion, I'll never forget the night of the premiere was very emotional for everybody in St. Louis. And, uh, and I was on the stage you know, taking my bow and Arthur Woodley, he grabbed me and he grabbed me real, he was a strong guy and he grabbed me real tight behind my neck. And he, you know, he was looking at me and he goes, he says, your dad would be really proud of you right now. And that, 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 it made me emotional because, you know, it's one of those things where you don't really understand where your parents are coming from. And then years later, I mean, even with all, I had a story with all Blakey like that. You know, where our Blakey made me realize how brilliant my dad was and I had no clue. I used to think my dad was just this corny dude who loved the opera and who hung out with musicians and, you know, sold insurance and sang in church. That was my dad to me. And when my when my cousin got a set of drums, he sat on the drums and said, let me show you all how to play. And he started playing four, four on the bass drum, two and four on the hi-hat. And we thought that was the corniest stuff we ever heard. We laughed, laughed, laughed. He got mad and said, y'all don't want to learn nothing. Years later, I'm playing with my hero, Art Blakey. My first gig, Strasbourg, France. We play morning. Bop, bo, dee, be, dee, lo, bo, be, da, when it goes to the bridge. Bop, bop, be, dee, 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 dee. I literally couldn't play. I was like, what the hell? You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where, you know, my dad meant a lot to me. You know, he, he introduced me to a lot of things. We used to argue all the time about music. And then it took me to become a grown man to realize even in our arguments, he never said, do it because I told you so. His thing was, you know, prove your point. Mm. You know, prove your point to me. Let me see where you're coming from. And I didn't really understand that until I was an adult myself, you know. And I wish he were here. You know, I wish he were here to so I could say thank you to him. You know, it's just one of those things, though. You know, but well, you are through your work. You know that you are saying thank you. Thank you. I'm trying. I'm 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 trying. You know, I don't want to let people down. You know, there's too many people who are invested in this. You know, when anybody signs on to one of these productions, I want to make sure that 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 whatever it is they singing, they're connected to it. They feel it. And it, it it's something that resonates in their soul and something that they feel proud singing. Terrence, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for, you know, just continuing to motivate and inspire me personally through your work and watching your your grind, man. <laughs> Speaking of which, that's why I look like this. I don't have enough time to, to <laughs> do anything. I'm in the middle of working on a bunch of projects. You know what I mean? That means your priorities are in order. So <laughs> Yeah, man, I was, I was sitting there going, oh, it's 10.55. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here on Artemis C. Terrence I appreciate you. Good seeing you again. You too. See you soon.
This is Kia Bennett. This is Desiree Jordan. And, and we are Key Day. You're listening to Artemisy with Kay Charles on DC Radio.
Writer Moses Sumney from his latest release called Live from Black Alachia singing Color. The Ghanaian singer has opened for artists like Solange Knowles and James Blake and has solidified his place on the alternative scene with his third album. Jasmine Horn and her Noble Force just landed a Grammy nomination for her album called Dear Love, released on her very own label called Empress Legacy Records. We heard her singing Nia. And that set began with Terrence Blanchard featuring E-Collective and Turtle Island Quartet with Envisioned Reflections. Now, this next group of women started last year with a Grammy nomination and haven't slowed down their momentum since. Here's Sage featuring Gerald Clayton on the piano singing Dusk Baby. This is Artemisy. I'm Kay Charles. Hi, I'm Dominique Fissimé, and you're listening to Artemisy with Kay Charles on DC Radio. Oh, 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 
this is Ella Nicole, and you're listening to Artemisy with Kay Charles on DC Radio.
With a last name like Isley, she's basically musical royalty who must have just been born with that voice of pure silk. Ah, that's Alex Isley right there featuring Robert Glasper with Still Wonder, another gorgeous track that definitely made my playlist of the best love songs of 2021. Just before that, we heard Yeba featuring ASAP Rocky with Far Away. 
We heard another product of musical royalty. I call her mama, Miss Dee Dee Bridgewater, one of my aunties in my head. That was China Moses and the Vibe Tribe with Put It On The Line. And Nate Smith released a solid album last year recounting memories from his formative years in Richmond, Virginia called Kenfolk 2, See The Birds. We heard him on a track from that record featuring one of my favorite Mint Condition alums, Stokely, singing Don't Let Me Get Away. Up next, Lucky Day joined forces with the legendary Earth, Wind & Fire on one of the best remixes of a classic that came out last year. And let's not forget how we were all thoroughly entertained by their verses with Alex Isley's fam. Here's EWF and Lucky Day with You Want My Love. You're listening to Artemisy on DC Radio 96.3 HD4, and we're online at dcradio.gov.
Penfold, and you're listening to Artemisie with Kay Charles on DC Radio. Mm-hmm. 
What's up, y'all? This is Robert Glasper, and you're listening to Artificy with K. Charles on DC Radio, the one and only. Why must we sing so hard? Sometimes they don't understand. It's just the way we live. It's in the land. In everything we do, we gotta tell our life story. It might be the blues or pop, how we rock or hip hop. Oh, yes, a little bit the church and don't forget to do up. That's how we swing. We swing. And touch the sky with our feet standing on the ground. From the rhythm of the bush to the soul in the streets, we be tap dancing on your head, a break dance like it's be street. That's how we swing. That's how we swing. That's how we swing. Why do we swing so hard? It's the rhythm of life. It's how we get down the whole world around. It's a special kind of magic, part of our melanated sound. From the rising of the sun till the end of the day, we be shining like a diamond. That's just our way. That's how we swing.
The Baylor Project had one incredible year, landing themselves a record deal with Motown Gospel and a Grammy nomination. This song was also named one of NPR's best songs of 2021. That was We Swing, featuring Jasmia Horn and Diane Reeves. Also released this year, that infectious track by Theo Croker, Happy Feet, featuring Malaya. And we heard Gretchen Parlato's take on Anita Baker's Sweet Love, featuring once again the signature piano work of Gerald Clayton from a Grammy-nominated 2021 release, Floor. And that's a wrap for my top picks for 2021. I'm so grateful for all the music that came out of this past year. It really got me through. For all of this and much more, check out Artemis' Best of 2020.2 playlist on Spotify. Oh, and thanks so much to Terrence Blanchard for joining me today. Be sure to check out our interview footage on my YouTube channel by searching Kiana Faircloth and be sure to subscribe and share. I've got so much more content coming your way in 2022, so please stay tuned. Now I leave you with another high energy track coming from Candice Hoy's remixed by Natasha Diggs. This one really climbed the UK music charts in 2021. Here's Zora's Moon. Until next time, I'm Kay Charles, encouraging you to let the intimacy of art ignite the passion within you, and vice versa. That's Artemisy. Thank you.